tonight, I'd like to expand on the conversation of loving the house that ego built, since that is the theme of the retreat. And I think I'd like to start with a poem from uh, David Budbill, one of my favorites, that seems to encapsulate what we need to do to love the house that ego built in very succinct terms. It's entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, Hey, how you doing? (laughs) Say, nice bull. (laughs) So this... (laughs) This poem captures the trajectory, you could say, or the direction of our practice and the way that we can most optimally love this uh, existence (coughs) that we have mysteriously and through no fault of our own uh, found ourselves born into. Uh, And that direction is moving from the inevitable, I don't care who you are, the inevitable narrow vortex, narrow world of our self-preoccupation, that personality view, that me view, moving from that narrow gravitational field of me and mine to the wider gravitational field or the wider view of the, the Dharma or, or life itself, connecting with life itself. The poet Rumi put it very beautifully in, in the part of one of his poems where he, he cried out also. He said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, and I think of me thinking, because this is, the me thinking is a house of fear, and our bodies feel, tremble in the face of, of that that perceived feeling of separation. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So when I hear these words, I'm reminded of... The other night when I was sitting with you and we, we experimented a little bit with what it was like for you uh, 
after you came out of the view of yourself for a moment, after your last thought had stopped and before the next one arose. People reported there was a sense of freedom, a sense of peace, a sense of spaciousness. I forgot what other things people said. Again, we didn't create that experience. All we did was temporarily remove or suspend that, um, that cherished view of ourselves, that story that lives in our mind. And each of us in our own internal way, whether or not you experience it as a wide view or not, each of us over the course of retreat has slowly settled down and down. And your bodies are starting to, you're starting to inhabit your body and your body's starting to relax a little bit. It's evidenced by the, the stillness in the room. We've all been noticing it today that there's a, almost a palpable quieting and and tenderizing effect of being quiet like this. And you've become, perhaps, over the course of these days, a little bit more uh, familiar with your direct experience of yourself and perhaps seen the difference between your direct experience of yourself and the version of you that plays in your mind. Because when I look at you, and this is, always happens to be on retreat, and I've had the good fortune, we have the good fortune of meeting with you. It's like I look at each person because I've, you know, I've come for, at least while I'm with you, I'm out of the tangle of me thinking. And if we're really here together out of the tangle of, of me thinking, maybe noticing it, but, more, but not being defined by my me thinking or your me thinking, I'm just connecting. I have this, this instantaneous feeling of, you're beautiful. Not one person here that just didn't, doesn't capture my, my um, affection. And there's not one person here that I, I actually can feel as though when I'm sitting with you that, that uh, there is, that there's really another there. It just seems like we are... We're in this, in this little bubble, this bubble together where I cannot so easily, and I'm feeling it right now sitting with you, can't easily find a dividing line between us. That we're somehow, we've, when my mind is a little quiet and I'm here, uh, the sense of self and other just kind of melts away. And we, as Thich Nhat Hanh put it, I hope I have that passage with it, uh, we, we enter our, he, he says, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we enter our? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. As I connect, as we connect, we stop, we flow down and down in ever widening experiences of ourselves. That sense of just being ourselves, we're still fully here. We couldn't experience this if it wasn't for our individuality. 
But that individuality, when, when experienced in a field of safety, and it increases as we, we're here, we don't always feel so safe in our life for very good reasons in some cases. But as that safety increases, we, and we pick our spots, of course, until we really can be safe in any environment, and um, at least safe with our um, safe with ourselves. But as we let ourselves feel that safety, just being ourselves, we stop uh, identifying as much with the story in our mind. We just we much more base our well-being and our, if we're going to have a self-definition, we're going to base it on, on present evidence, on what we're experiencing right now after, as we're here in the simple reality of the present moment. And when I look around this room as, and meet with you, you know, I've been wanting to talk about this for the whole retreat, and, I, and a few people had mentioned it to me because they'd heard it at other retreats. But, um, you know, in, in bios for, for retreats that I've done all over, you know, all over the planet, I often put at the end of my little bio, uh, my r- most recent guru is my daughter, Molly. And each year, it's funny, I've been, I was tracking back, I was actually looking for a bio for the, I'm going to Durango where Aaron lives to lead a retreat. I was looking at the bio and one of them said age five, one said age six, one had said she's now going to be 12 years old in, um, in September. But Molly is not my guru because she's such a, da- such a much more dazzling being than anybody else in this world, just pontificating Dharma <laughs> <laughs> like her dad. <laughs> Instead, she's just quintessential, a quintessential human being unfolding. Who's, I, I can obviously see she has come to, into being through no, no fault of hers. She's just, she's emerged because, from the combination of so many uh, causes and conditions. Uh, and here she is emerging and she has emerged into this world, and what I noticed right off the bat is that she emerged in a very unique way. Quintessential, universally, uh, a little girl like any other little girl, but unique and individual, like each of us. And I, and I used to say, she's just so, her name is Molly, she's just so Molly. But then I started to notice at age three, or age four, she had these little ringlet curls, brown little curly hair, blondish brown curly hair. And at age three or four, she went to nursery school. And there were all these little straight, blonde-haired little girls, so she started pulling at her hair. She started building through the inevitable mirroring, those mirror neurons, just tuning into her environment and started to create a, started in her mind, a view of what you should look like. And that became a new source of identity. And I've seen her all through the years, and I'll back up to, to um, you know, back to her molliness, but all through the years, as she's grown, 
she has uh, she has innocently lost at, from time to time her her confidence in her molliness, just the beauty and suchness of her being, the same beauty and suchness of each of you, your your version of molliness that sits here. She's lost that at times, and and part of her own uh, socialization and her development is is um, you know mimicking or modeling after what she sees, and it all just happens by osmosis. I we she is educated in a kind of Waldorfy system, but we occasionally let her watch little programs we have over the years, and. She, she slipped in a few of these little preteen programs, and pretty soon she was standing like this <laughs> and giving us attitude. And it didn't seem like, you know, that, that essential molliness. So, so unbidden, un, 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 unattempted, she has, uh, she has formed an idea an identity view, a view based on who she, what she sees and hears and who th- she thinks she needs to be. And then within that little world, she's, she's measuring, you know, she knows who the super smart kids are, who the super creative kids. And the beautiful thing about Waldorf is they celebrate everyone's uniqueness. But yet, just like everyone developmentally, she's gotten to that point where she could can from time to time lose touch with her essential her essential beauty and she gets caught up in the tangle of fear thinking of me thinking and where do i fit in this family of things so seeing that process but not unlike seeing the way that i was formed by I, what, what was the model for me? The model for me was when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. And that's, you know, that's our cultural view. We are a culture of what we call, what in the Buddhist tradition is the plane of existence called the plane of hungry ghosts. Beings who, are, who have little mouths and huge stomachs who are you know, un, insatiably hungry and thirsty. They call it the word for craving in uh, in Pali, in the Pali language is tanha, and the, the deeper translation is unslakable thirst. And, you know, this is, so it was natural in my developmental process to think, oh, if I surround myself with stuff, then I'll, that, that's the way that I'll keep myself secure. And when I had that epiphany, you know, in that little room, that uh, that was the way that I was trying to love myself, love that house that was be- being built through no fault of my own, just by conditions and circumstances, I began to see so clearly that everyone, everyone, all their strategies, all your strategies, everything that you've done in your life that has perhaps brought you dissatisfaction, self-consciousness, uh, fear, worry, all the elements that come with what I sometimes call looking for love in all the wrong places, all those things have been born of love for yourself. But as one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadot, says, make love of yourself perfect. Give yourself infinity, in other words. Give yourself 
the widen your circle of being, come out of the tangle of this. So inevitably we have to come out of the tangle. We have to move from the narrow egoic world that, has be- that we've become bound in. We won't stop having an egoic world, but, we, but it's incompatible with awareness. So we, we, as we're, we become, and how do we work with it? We become aware of it. And so we, without necessarily going anywhere, we, we move out of the narrow world, the narrow vortex of, of that personality view that's always uh, measuring, getting smaller, like that poem, checkmate this, checkmate that. Uh, and we, we open up, slowly, slowly, going where the, the fish are swimming freely. So the whole of the teaching and the whole of the practice is moving from this narrow gravitational field of me to uh, include the sense of me, but to a wider circle of being and affection. Uh, Even our loving-kindness practice within this tradition, we start with those who we have a sentimental relationship, someone we feel easy loving-kindness, but the direction of the nature of our mind and the nature of our heart is a boundless loving-kindness, an impartial loving-kindness that can include even the most difficult person, that we can feel, that we can feel goodwill even, even to our, toward our so-called enemy because we understand that they are also subject to the same developmental processes, the same confusion, the same urge to be happy. And it's a process. We can't just say, now, be, now love everybody. It's, uh, the process is slowly coming out of the tangle of our ill will and our hatred and our frustration for those experiences where we lost a sense of ourselves through no fault of our own, where we may have been harmed or spoken to or traumatized in so many different ways. But slowly, slowly, we use that as the manure of our practice and just gently, gently move in the direction of widening our circle of affection until there's no one that we have to, we don't have to like somebody. We don't have to give them the key to our apartment, but we don't, but we make room in our heart for for all sentient beings. So it's all about widening the circle of being. I found it useful through the years to, to look at uh, what the Buddha both said and experienced as his own experience of widening that, that circle of being, widening his own circle of affection and compassion and, uh, and widening the nature of his mind. So he didn't feel so bound up. He, didn't, he came to an understanding that his mind wasn't stuck between his ears that the nature of mind has no location, it has no inside, it has no outside. It is literally free, like, the, like a boundless ocean. Right now, even in this room, you know, where's the limit of your mind? Now, we often talk about mind as our thinking, but mind is, uh, is the, you know, the nature of consciousness. It's, it, it has no inside or outside or height or depth or color or shape. It's, but yet everything is known to us. That's amazing. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, they use this word, emaho. How amazing. Just the fact that we're conscious. 
and what we're aware of. How can anybody explain that? How can anybody explain that we have eyes that see and ears that hear and noses that smell? We take these things for granted and they're just amazing. In fact, I'm getting kind of stoned just <laughs> looking, at, you know, looking at these strange beings that we are. While we're caught up in the tangle of me, think we, 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 some, we often miss the, uh, the awesomeness of, and mystery of our existence. I don't think the mystery of our existence ever goes away, but our experience, our suffering, it is mitigated by our wisdom and understand and our compassion. And that we find, as Aaron said many, many times, we find as we put our trust more in our capacity to unfurl and open and be with, uh, we find that everything um, becomes something at least we can work with. And everything becomes that manure. It, it is the unique, and I'm just parroting a little bit of what Aaron said last night, but it is very unique to human beings that our difficulties become the cause of our happiness, that that becomes the cause of our, of our tenderizing and our, our wisdom and our insight. And that's, to me, that's amazing too. So this is what happened to the Buddha. His difficulties, his dissatisfaction became the cause of his awakening and his awakening, I don't know, most of you probably know this, but the Buddha was called, he wasn't called the great sufferer. He was called the happy one. He was called Sukhiya. Uh, so it was all about happiness, all about joy, all about awakening our capacity to experience awe, wonder, joy, happiness, uh, 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 a... Um, an altruistic sense of joy, being able to really enjoy when somebody else is happy, to be able to, eat, to join, as Aaron spoke about last night, to be able to join someone in their suffering and not have to hide away in fear and dullness, shut down. So everything moves in that direction of, of a greater capacity for, for joy and connection. And the way he, what really got him, what turned his heart around, what turned him toward the Dharma, Dharma meaning truth, the way of happiness, the way of well-being, was, uh, was dissatisfaction, restlessness, agitation, having everything but being, being, uh, still being thirsty. So that... If anybody thinks that the Buddha was without desire when he was a seeker, he was filled with desire. But because of the, the, his purity, you could say, his desire was for the one thing that no other desire could fulfill. Which was, so it was against the stream of just spinning out in desire, the endless, unslakeable. It was the desire for freedom. Which fortunately, he found... Uh, that the way went nowhere. But I'll get to that again later. But relative to his time, he had, he had, um, he took the, 
the cues from his environment, just like Molly did, just like I did, just like we all do. And the cue was, as human beings do, because when they experience pleasurable experiences, things associated with pleasure, they want it. And because they're not so mindful when they want something, they, that wanting is often then pursued. And the pursuit of that wanting produces experiences that give, pleasure, give more pleasure. And what, what most of us don't understand and what the Buddha then later talked about was we need to know three things about what, we're, what we usually seek for our sense of well-being. We need to know their pleasure. The whole world of sense pleasures. Now, that's also an amazing capacity that we have to experience. It was one of the kinds of happiness that the Buddha described. There are four worldly kinds of worldly happiness that, he, that a person can have in their life. And the first one was to be able to, uh, to, have, um, to have pleasurable experiences, to have resources, to have comfort, and, then, and to be able to share it, to enjoy it. So that's the second one, to be able to enjoy it and share it. Uh, third is to be able to, um, to uh, be debt-free. <laughs> it sounds very strange in our world, doesn't it? <laughs> Worth, it's worth attempting. And the last one, considered, six, was it 16 times more important than the first having resources and pleasure, source of pleasure, and enjoying them and sharing them, being, being debt-free. And the last one is um, being blameless, which means establishing in your life, as we talked about the first night and as we set up the container of the retreat, establish an environment of safety and, and number one mantra, do no harm, encompasses everything. Do no harm. So we, we develop and, and he described that if one develops and creates this foundation of non-harming, of of not harming with one's speech, not harming with thoughts, not harming with one's actions, not harming with one's livelihood, not clouding one's perception with excessive use of intoxicants, then what comes with it is a, a kind of um, a purity, a purity of action that brings what he called the bliss of blamelessness, this great happiness. And not only was the, the bliss of blamelessness beautiful in itself, the, the joy that comes from, um, from acting in ways that are, that are um, oriented toward kindness and goodwill and non-harming. But with, if one establishes that kind of bliss of blamelessness, it opens us up. We're not so, so affected and so much reverberating all the time from the effects of the things that we've done that have caused harm to ourselves or others that because of our openness, because of that feeling of blamelessness, we're actually, we can be here. We can actually be present. For a little bit longer, sustained a little bit longer, so that we're not immediately visited by, by regret 
or self-blame or blaming others, or that we're, our, mind is, our mind is a little bit more peaceful. Consequently, the pleasures of the senses, as you've brushed the dust of memory here, I know that you've enjoyed the beauty here. And you've probably seen in a way that perhaps you've never seen before if you're new to retreat practice or heard sounds or tasted raisins. Felt them in your, on your tongue. Realize that you actually swallow each bite. <laughs> that was a revelation to me. I, I, I realized it stopped right when the flavor passed, my awareness would just go <laughs> to, the, to the next bite until I could repeat that. But the happiness that comes from um, it, the happiness of living a non-harming life is what makes it possible for us to, um, to really enjoy the senses. So the, the Buddha's teaching never denied that uh, the world of sense pleasures as Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away. So that was the, the secret of what the Buddha wanted people to understand about the world of sense pleasures. First and foremost, their pleasure. Second was their, their defect, their, their danger, how you can, you, can get, uh, you can end up on a gerbil wheel of endless I call it endless suspended happiness, constantly waiting for that next experience. Because although the pleasures of the senses are so delicious, unless we have an understanding of them, we experience them and we don't, act, we don't notice that after we experience something pleasurable, there's a shelf life. You know, there's a, it, the pleasure of it passes, just like the taste sensation. And when it passes, there's often a feeling of, ah. And we don't hover and feel the unsatisfactoriness of that passing sense experience. Instead, we immediately fill it with the uh, attempt to have another one, and have another one, and have another one, until our life is this, this, has this quality of toppling forward into that, that future, and that the world of me that is in search of the next pleasure is a very small world. It's a tangled world. And if the, when the future becomes the source of my next, that which is going to bring me happiness, there is always the potential, as I mentioned the other night, that, uh, that I won't get it, that it may not turn out, things may not turn out. And because of that, then I'm, while I'm waiting for that next pleasurable experience, as much as my ideas of what I'm going to have, that person I'm going to, to uh, be involved with, or the person in my life I'm going to get rid of. <laughs> you know, we have the, for those of you who are new on retreats, and please forgive me for all the veterans here, but there is a phenomena on retreats that has been uh, a source of pain and pleasure, uh, which is the phenomena called the, the VR and the VV. The VR is uh, the initials for Vipassana Romance, 
where someone in the retreat uh, you see, so the, the, the door of perception called the eye, we call it the sense base of the eye, meets the object, which is a, a person who triggers off a, the seeing consciousness. So in order to see, you have to have the base, you have to have the experience, and you have to have consciousness. And then you also have to have perception, you know, based on your, you know, memory of what you like and what you don't like and all of that and what that person is and what they're, and all the little stories that we make up, all kinds of mental formations. But in that little transaction of contacting our senses, there quickly follows, especially if it arises with the feeling tone of pleasure, a little liking, and that liking usually gets followed by wanting, and then pretty soon the wanting gets followed by clinging, grasping, attachment, and that pressure of that then just, just generates this, literally in five seconds, <laughs> mating, dating, lovemaking, marriage, and sometimes divorce with it. But, but a, a torrent of passion and hunger and a view that that person is going to be the source of, my, of uh, the answer to all my problems or fulfill all my dreams. And just like that doubt spin-out that I spoke of the other night, you know, nothing really happened. Still sitting here, but the mind has just gone into that effusion of worlds and this is often what happens. And just here's a someone who actually saw their mind go into one of these, a, a poet named George Bilger. And I always debate about reading it because it's a little bit of a long poem, but you'll just appreciate this, how this operates in your own mind. And this is one of the this is what the Buddha saw was a, a slightly dangerous about the world the happiness, what he called the happiness of the pleasures of the senses, as wonderful as they are and how necessary as they are for our functioning. If we don't have some kind of sense pleasure, we, can't, we, we don't survive. We fail to thrive. And at the time of his, uh, of his own awakening, that one of his realizations and how he came to that understanding of the middle way is that he experimented with trying to deny himself sense pleasures, deny himself food, deny himself comfort, and all it did was make him sick, tired, mind very weak, unable to see very clearly, and very close to dying. And so he saw that yeah, the extreme of getting involved in sense pleasures does, is unslakeable, is insatiable, but also the extreme of self-mortification and denial. That doesn't work either. But the, the answer sits right in the middle. The relief that we seek is not in going, not in either, but in understanding the limitations of both. So it's not embrace this or embrace this or just embrace here and stay in this little narrow tunnel of I'm not going to either indulge, I'm not going to, to renounce. 
And then it, we just turn into, we turn into an irritating Buddhist. So this is about freedom. It's about and the freedom that comes from understanding. So here's someone who I had a great understanding of the limitations. I think of the of the uh, the dependence on uh, the happiness of sense pleasures. What the Buddha called uh, Lokiya Sukha, worldly happiness, which he also called the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery, because it's, it can't be satisfied. George Bilger, his poem entitled Unwise Purchases. <laughs> they sit around the house not doing much of anything, the boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread, the French-cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French-cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I bought, I thought, would unlock the mysteries of the heavens but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a (laughs) bilingual child in Seville, Sevilla, or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly, I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy, Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust at, while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes. On the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. (laughs) A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately to the Castilian Spanish, to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto enjoying a modest Cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So this is the life that the, <laughs> that the Buddha was raised in. It is, the, is not, so much cons- not so much consumption, because that's much more that commercial uh, world that we live that uh, as one teacher says the whole point of it is to keep us greedy to keep going or to cultivate desire. In fact, I might as well read you from Sogyal Rinpoche. He says, 
says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distraction. Samsara is the endless cycle of, of birth and death of this desire body. Selling of, of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to a source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead us only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, and all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So sometimes we need to be hit like that with the wake up to the, to the, um, the trance uh, that, that innocently we are searching happiness and uh, our view is so narrow that we'll settle for crumbs and crumbs that actually make us thirstier. Again, come out of the tangle of, of fear thinking, of scarcity thinking, live in silence, flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Now, when you're present here tonight, When you, in those moments that you're actually present, do you want anything? Do you need anything? Everything has been given. So as Hafez, who's been widely quoted on this retreat, says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) (laughs) Nice image, huh? (laughs) I find it interesting, and just I'll get back to the Buddha, but I find it interesting, you know, during that... I don't remember what year it was now, but it was the the year of the uh, tsunami in Southeast Asia. Big tsunami and a lot of people perished. And there was a tribe on the coast of Burma. Maybe some of you saw, they did, an exp- uh, did a story of them on 60 Minutes called the Mokan. And the Mokan were, were very, an indigenous tribe that were really of this area. And they lived alongside a much more acculturated tribe. And they both made their living uh, as, uh, both of these tribes made their living as as fishermen and women. And 
the, the more acculturated tribe uh, perished in the tsunami. But the Moken uh, understood the, the way, the, the nature, you know, understood the, the, um, the tides and, the, and the, um, the ways of the natural world there, and they survived. And in looking more deeply at the Moken culture, there were two words that, I, that seemed to me to be a secret to why they were so in tune with their environment. They had no word for when and no word for want. So if you don't have the word for want and you don't have the word for when, where are you? Try that on for a moment. Now, whenever I think of that, I, I remember in graduate school, I, we studied different cultures and the way they construct language and different metaphors. Like we are the biggest metaphor used in our culture is the time is money metaphor. You know, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough, you know, I've got too much. You know, we talk about that. But there was a culture, you know, the way that we, that our mind you know, it, it's so obvious when we meditate together, when we practice together, that there's only an unfolding present, that the future doesn't exist. It only exists as, a, as our, our ideas, our plans, our worries, our um, excitement. And, but it's, it's a projection that arises in the unfolding now, as we sometimes call it, the unfolding present. And it doesn't really exist, and the past doesn't exist either. It just arises as memory, you know, and regrets, and um, reminiscence. And, um, but all that's happening here. And so it, there's, this is all there is. But yet we are, um, a, we are conditioned. Our one of our biggest conditioned uh, habits. And I didn't realize it was cultural, but our conditioned habit is when we think of that, the future, what hasn't happened yet, we somehow throw it in front of us. And we look forward to it. And, uh, and we throw the past behind us. And we even talk about it. It's behind you. The past is, is behind. Well, there was a culture that I studied where the past, they put in front because you can see it. The future, behind you because you can't. <laughs> so try that on. But in either case, you can see that it's a construction. And this is the, the chronic world of the, the wanting mind, the one that depends on, on uh, this worldly kind of happiness. It tends to live in that little narrow band this is why when we start to come out of the, the concept of time, step out of time, sitting here, and see that time is conceptual, everything opens up. We see that this, everything's possible right here. This moment, it's, you could call it empty. You could call it an empty field of creative possibility. And when you realize that, you realize that any moment that you're present is empty in that way. 
It doesn't have an inherent meaning or significance other than what kind of seed we plant into it. So if you plant a seed of hunger into this moment, the present becomes the pass-through on our way to somewhere else or becomes the obstacle or the enemy, as Eckhart Tolle. If you plant the seed of, of love, plant the seed of attention, what, what are you planting? You're planting the seed of, of happiness and contentment, of possibility, of creativity. Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, live in silence. Now, the fact that you just let go of time for a moment, you let go of your dependency on what we call worldly happiness, lokiya sukha, you let go for a moment the story about yourself and the story about your lack. Did you disappear? Or aren't you more here than you've ever been? That's, the, that's the, the, the irony, is that when we step out of, the, of the, the house of me, we're just so much more ourselves. With all our capacity, with all our amazing capacity of clarity, of heartfulness, of intelligence, of excitement, not about something, just about being. It's the joy of being. That's you, whoever you've imagined yourself to be. It's, that's a second-hand version. It's a beautiful one, your story, your personal story, but it's not the whole story. And this is what the Buddha began to realize that leaving yourself in this, in this endless search, in this samsaric loop, has not um, made anyone truly happy. So in his case, he saw the limitations of that. And, uh, and, and it, what punctuated his, his gentle and in some ways joyful renunciation of the dependency on the world of sense pleasures was he woke up to the fact of um, he woke up to the fact of sickness, old age, and death, which we we always mention. It's very central. He woke up to the what he called the heavenly messengers, the messengers, the, the reminders. That, um, that the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. The definition of birth is the leading cause of all kinds of stress. But most importantly, everything that arises has the nature to pass away. And so anything that arises and passes away, including your own body, cannot be a a place cannot be a reliable refuge, a reliable source of happiness. So this is why he called this dependency on the happiness of sense pleasures, the pleasures of the body, the pleasures of 
of the mind even. Uh, depending on that was a kind of bondage. And there weren't too many models during the Buddha's time about how to find a reliable refuge, how to have true happiness, worth that name. But there were enough there were enough people around who at least looked like they, they were peaceful, they had a nice countenance. And he's, he saw in his little wanderings, he saw a, a mendicant, a, a renunciate, and had that kind of aura of peace and said, hmm, that's interesting. Then he heard about a, a meditation teacher. I used to know the name of the teacher, now I can't remember it, but the teacher taught him elements of what we've been doing here. This, this capacity that we have to take our, this wonderful consciousness, to give it a focus, to gather it here, to, to use our doors of perception, to use our senses, to wake up to the, to the simple reality of the present moment and stay here and keep noticing, keep noticing what's happening at the doors of perception. Stay here, stay here, stay here. And he followed the instructions, putting his attention on a single experience and staying there. And his, uh, he began to experience a, a kind of happiness and a kind of joy that he had never experienced. And it could be sustained for long periods of time. And he noticed that that mind that was, that was so still so steady, it was at the time of its stillness and steadiness impervious to any one of these thoughts that come through our mind that says, oh, when is the bell going to ring? (laughs) When is the meal? When is the Dharma talk coming? When is it over? (laughs) Whatever, Whatever goes into our mind that gives us the notion that something will make us happier than we are. The mind completely protected, secluded from any kind of hindrance of doubt, of fear, of, of, uh, of aversion or ill will, restlessness, agitation, suffused with energy and rapture, what he called an unmixed happiness, just sublime state of absorption and seclusion from all uh, interference. No shadow of any, what he called, uh, kiles or defilements. And he, he was amazed. It made the ordinary sense pleasures, that which you're constantly, you know, just think of all the build-up to... to uh, a sensual encounter, and then it lasts just such a <laughs> short time. But it didn't have to, all that endless waiting. And here there was something that he didn't have to go anywhere. His mind just suffused with pleasure, ease, calm, wholeness. Sufficiency. 
I bet you've had moments like that here. Just moments. And they are what he described as a springboard to awakening. But you notice he didn't call it awakening. (laughs) Said it was a much more refined kind of worldly happiness. And why did he call it, why did he put it under the umbrella of worldly happiness? Because like other pleasures of the world, it also had a shelf life. That is, as onward leading and as helpful and as purifying and as smoothing and, and joyous and inspiring as those experiences of deep concentration were, they eventually faded away. And that was, the, that was, the, that was it. That was the kind of happiness that um, was... That was the only thing being taught that he knew of. So whatever measure of that quiet you've had, I by all means enjoy it, as Aaron's been encouraging you to really take in the joy as it shows itself here. To deny yourself that joy would, is a, a form of insanity. But... Also take the words of William Blake when he said, he or she, I'll use he because that's how it's written, but I sometimes switch the he. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So he saw that once he saw the limitation of even the most delicious experience, certainly experienced the benefits of it and continued to use the power of concentration in his practice until his, uh, the night of his awakening. So we, it's all through the sutras, the Buddha entering into this meditation and that meditation, um, all about this uh, importance of stillness and seclusion and moving beyond the reach of, uh, of Mara and the, all the temptations of mind that make us think that the best you know, is ahead. I've already hit an hour. You, I think I've got to keep going a little bit longer. Hope you're okay with that. So that was what was being offered at his time as a uh, even though his mind was you know wide at those moments it wasn't uh, wasn't very reliable even though his mind his self idea disappeared it quickly came back once that experience faded so he said this is not true happiness this is not reliable this is not a reliable refuge. I can't put my trust in this. It's too fleeting. It's subject to change. And so it's at that point that he, well, actually after that point, that's when he tried the ascetic practices, and, and you know the end of that story. But then he finally took some food, found some comfort, 
found a measure of concentration. He, he, he used the power of mind. It's, this is an, an, an extraordinary observing power that we have when we harness it for the purpose of awakening. This is why we emphasize all through the retreat, in the most gentle way, no breaks, just moment by moment, moment by moment. Because you're, you, you have a capacity to see, um, to literally penetrate or to see through the folds of the universe, to, to see through all the webs of, of, um, of illusion and, and feel that deep sense of interbeing. And we feel that by the power of our presence. And when we're scattered, it's, it's, uh, it's hard for our, our love and intelligence and clarity to function. This is why we come on retreat. So it's so, you've given yourself such an enormous gift. And don't underestimate the power of your, of your own heart to, to awaken. So anyway, he sat down using the power of mind. And then he started doing what we've been doing. Not just using a primary anchor, but tracking moment to moment all the phenomena that was arising. And, and he saw that if you track changing experiences, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, moods, thoughts, you track those, each, one, each thing you notice creates a, a momentary power of mind. And you link a lot of those together, your mind becomes really sharp and bright. And the more he paid attention to the flow of sensations, moods, thoughts, images, all the other sense experiences, the brighter his mind got. Until, and I'm taking some, I'm, I'm uh, assuming certain things. But I can't, of course I wasn't in the heart and mind of the Buddha, but, it, but there are words that seem consistent and different cross-culturally about what's, what's said about this. But his mind began to, to shine in its clarity and became so bright that everything that came into his mind was reflected really clearly. Lots of, lots of clarity. And the more clear his mind became, a few different things happened. One, he began to see that the, not just be interested in what he was noticing, but also interested in the quality and the nature of the mind itself. And, he, and then he saw, as he, things were reflected in his mind, he saw everything is arising and vanishing. Everything that I have taken to be me and mine, this body, constantly in a state of flux. Moods that I was so identified with, they're just happening according to conditions. And these thoughts, thinking themselves. You know the book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. 65,000, it says, we have every day. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Some say it's 90% of repeats from the day before, but but who knows. But so he's sitting there and he's seeing this flow of experience. And the more he saw how everything was arising, changing, passing away, happening all by itself, his mind began to experience this 
great joy. Not the joy of concentration, not the joy that one gets in from, from solitude or the pleasure of being with somebody or the pleasure of a meal, the pleasure of seeing a beautiful sight or smell something, but the pleasure, the joy of a heart and a mind that's, that's noticing the full display of life but not reacting to it. Not just being able to enjoy it without wanting more, without pushing anything away, without exhausting ourselves with reactivity. And the more he saw that, that, um, that everything that was coming and going, everything was in some fundamental way selfless, happening of itself, the, I, the identification with it, the sense of anything being me and mine just began to melt away. And his mind just fell into this, this great sense of equanimity. And you might think that at that moment he said, well, if I'm not this body and I'm not these moods and I'm not this thought, then who and what am I? What is it that's knowing all of this? And as he just settled into that natural wakefulness and clarity, that joy of equanimity, his mind opened. His mind opened, and in a flash of insight, he realized that the deepest happiness the reliable refuge, the deepest peace, the freedom was none other than the nature of your mind. The very consciousness through which each of you is perceiving right in this moment. And that we've been looking the wrong way. We've been going out in search. He called this the happiness of nirvana, the unconditioned. Beautiful example of, of this kind of realization. I, just, I love reading this because it's from a nun named Tajitsu. This is from a book called Women of the Way by Sally Tisdale. Tajitsu was standing on the small porch of Hakujan, Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that the fading away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all. And no one leaning. 
and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So the Buddha described the unconditioned nature of mind this way. He said, there's a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. So needless to say, one of the ways this is sometimes described is he has seen his own face. He's seen his own true face in the face of of emptiness, the face of freedom. Um, And needless to say, seeing your own face, it's um, invisible, (laughs) yet everything is known. And at first, he didn't think anybody would understand as Aaron, I think, spoke about. But then he saw, with compassionate eyes, he saw that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And, and if, and that's you, and if pointed toward our own nature, we have this capacity to realize the same freedom. And because we have such a chronic tendency to think we need to go to to find the end of, of suffering, he very clearly stated, and I'll read it to you. He said, it is within this fathom long body that lies the world. It's within this fathom long body with its senses and perceptions that lies the world. It's within this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions that lies the cause of the world, the way that we create the worlds in our mind. It is within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner senses lies the end of the world. And is within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the path leading to the end of the world. And then a poem was written or he uttered, by walking, one can never reach the end and limit of the world. Yet there is no release from suffering without reaching the world's end. Hence the wise one knows the world. The one who has lived the holy life will reach the end of the world knowing the world's end at peace. He no more longs for this world nor any other. So let's just sit free of longing for this world or any other.
May all beings realize the highest happiness. May all beings aim for the highest happiness and enjoy all the other kinds of happiness without clinging. Thank you so much for your long enduring attention. Just wind me up. (laughs) I hope you survived an hour and 15 minutes. Woo! Anyway, thank you for listening. And we now, let's make it a 20 minute walking period and then we'll come back and sit. So please take advantage of your power of mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.